Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Ancaster Councilor Lloyd Ferguson says there could be a tax revolt if City Council tries to get rid of area rating for transit. Also, a report from the Basic Income Canada Network says that those who are participating in that canceled program actually had their lives improved considerably. And Mexico is saying they will not ratify the new NAFTA trade deal unless the U.S. lifts those steel and aluminum tariffs on Mexico and Canada. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Interesting discussion. Uh, you know, the city council is still dealing with budgets and trying to put the finishing touches on uh, the budget for this year and find out what our, our tax rate is going to be and how much we're actually going to have to shell out. And uh, it's always a challenge for city councils. And uh, especially, of course, uh, if you want to go back about 18 years when the city was amalgamated, uh, there were some concerns here about pricing and, and about levels of service in different parts of this large area that we call the city of Hamilton now. So the council at that time decided on something called area rating, which basically says that you get what you pay for. In other words, if you're not getting transit service, for instance, uh, that you don't, you don't necessarily have to pay for that. Now, some areas do. I get that, right? It's, it's not a black and white issue necessarily. But at that time, council decided things like fire, uh, recreation, sidewalk clearing, and, of course, transit uh, would all be under the guise of area rating. Well, last week at council... Uh, they've decided to strike a committee to look at this whole idea of area rating for transit uh, with, I think, the stated goal anyway, by at least some of the councillors, if not most of them, to eliminate this and just have everybody pay for transit no matter where they live, no matter what level of service they get. Well, uh, that's not going over too well with an awful lot of people. Since we told you this uh, story last week, uh, a number of you have been in contact with me and uh, left messages, and we've talked about this, and uh, say this is not fair. I know that uh, one councillor said that uh, they don't want winners and losers. They want a, a fair system. Well, eliminating that and making people pay for something that they're not using and not even probably going to see for the next little while doesn't sound fair. And at least one councillor started to, uh, I, I think, enunciate those concerns, and that being Ancaster Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, who said at the time that if council moves ahead with uh, the elimination of this area rating, there could well be a tax revolt. Well, Lloyd Ferguson, the Ancaster Councilor, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Lloyd, thank you so much for the time. It's good to get with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Well, I mean, I've, I've tried to give you a little bit of background here, Lloyd, as to why this thing happened in the first place. And, and, and I know that at the time there was some discussion of that council back in 17, 18 years ago that said, look, we'll do this for a while and see how it works. Uh, the problem is, is, is to pull this out, I think, is going to cause more grief than it's worth. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I don't know uh, what is wrong with status quo. That's what I keep asking. Uh, you know, uh, if you want to eliminate all area rating, then the, the old city of Hamilton gets about $1.5 million per ward for area rating capital that uh, they get to keep for their particular wards. We don't enjoy that. So if you want to take the money from us for transit that we're not using, then share that around. Let's get rid of all area rating. And, of course, I just get scornful looks when I suggest that. But you nailed it when you uh, did your opening comments, or I listened to it, and uh, we used to area rate fire and um, recreation. But over time, that became balanced. Um, in Ancaster's case, we got a brand-new fire hall on Garner Road at Kitty Murray Lane, mm-hmm. which all full-time firefighters, so it didn't make sense that we would continue to area rate fire because we were getting the service then with full-time firefighters at two fire stations. The same with recreation. There's been quite a bit of investment in Ancaster and recreation. A number of new parks. We got a nice pool. We got uh, a large community center with uh, we have three arenas. So it made sense then that we again don't area rate for for recreation because everybody's getting pretty much the same. And that was put in two terms ago. And uh, but transit is the only one that's outstanding. And an interesting statistic that came to us at council last Thursday was. And it was a report that was requested by us as what percentage of um, of transit, the, the total transit system, is used by the suburbans. And interesting enough, 95% of our transit uh, service is in wards 1 through 8 or the old city Hamilton, and only 5% is in the suburban municipalities. And so why we got to pay the same for virtually no service or uh, a significant reduction in service doesn't seem fair. And there is losers in this thing. It's a, it's a suburban for having to pay, in the case of Ancaster, about 3.5% hit on your tax bill. That's over and above the increase that we annually have for salaries and wages and other things that go up. And it's about $200 per home in Ancaster, the early numbers that I'm seeing. 
Now, fortunately, we've uh, booted this off to the 2020 budget and struck a committee, which I've asked to sit on, to to try to find a solution. But quite frankly, right now, when, unless somebody can prove me different, I don't see a solution. It's just um, it's it's another form of downloading uh, onto the suburban municipalities for service we don't get. I've asked for a report that uh, would tell what would it cost to bring all the suburban municipalities up to the same level of service, and we don't have that. But I recall uh, about eight years ago we had the same report. It was in the order of $15 million. But I don't know if that's changed. So, um, you know, we need all this to information to come back to us. But, uh, you know, it, it just makes sense. If you want bus service in the suburban areas, you're more than welcome to have it. You just pay for it, and you pay by the kilometer. And in the case of Ancaster, we have, I agree, limited service, but it drives me nuts that uh, most of the buses I see going through Ancaster, and we cover Garner Road, we cover Wilson Street, uh, all the way into the industrial park to help the mountain people on Route 44. We have another service that comes down uh, Mohawk Road into Russo, but they're all running empty. So how the heck can I justify expanding the system when these buses are running empty. Now, as soon as they make the turn and start to head down the hill, those buses fill up. A lot of people say, why don't you run smaller buses? Well, what do you do when it gets down to a to Whitney Plaza and it fills up? And uh, the cost of running a bus, the biggest cost is um, uh, the driver. Is it cost the same whether it's a big bus or a little bus? Yeah, we, we had that debate on council back in the day, and, when they, and that was suggested at the time. And and, and, yeah. and you're absolutely right. I mean, it doesn't really do a whole lot to reduce the, the operating costs because the, you, you still have to fuel the thing and you still have to pay the person who's driving it. And, and, that's, and the, that's the monumental cost. I, I yeah. would submit, and, and just as, I'm just doing this anecdotally, though, Lloyd. I, I don't have statistics to back this up, but because uh, I drive around Ancaster a lot, obviously, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I would think that of the people that do use transit in Ancaster, probably 75 to 80% of them, it's in the Meadowlands. Uh, because it runs along golf links. But when I go to other areas, like you say, over around Wilson Street or out to, towards the high school, uh, I don't see a whole lot of buses, first of all. And I don't see a, and when I do see one, I don't see very many people on them. Well, a lot of members of council, including the mayor, think that transit is, uh, is sexy. They think it's politically sexy. But the statistics aren't proving that out. You know, we have about 15 routes now that uh, the ridership is significantly below a minimum standard that you need. And that report was presented to us. And the one that really frustrates me the most, every year we hear significant increase in our transit costs. This year it's in the order of 10%, around $9.5 million, to implement the 10-year strategy is the biggest chunk of it. And the 10-year strategy was put together in 2014. And since 2014, the number of rides are down by $1 million. The number of rides that were forecast back in 2014 uh, are down by two men. So we've seen a significant drop in ridership. So why do we still keep spending to enhance transit when the public isn't using it? And, and uh, this is not a Hamilton phenomenon. This is a North American phenomenon. Public transit, whether it's Uber or bikes or taxis or ride-sharing, who knows, um, the, the ridership is down, and nobody can give a definitive reason why. Right now, about 47% of the cost of running the transit system comes out of the fare box. The balance is on our tax bill. And now to take this, because it's politically sexy to expand transit, even though the statistics don't show it's needed, uh, and dump it on the suburbs is unconscionable. Let me ask you that, to that point, uh, because... I, I support public transit in cities. I think we have to, and I, you know, I'm we an Ancaster to. resident, and I pay probably more for. But I'm okay with that, and I don't have a problem with that because I, I, I see that there are people that do rely on that. But I don't hear the large hue and cry uh, for some of these other areas, like out in Glenbrook. I do a little bit in Waterdown. I mean, there's always going to be some people that say, "Hey, we need we need the service." But I don't really see the, the, the desire here by the residents for that kind of an expansion that some people are talking about. I, I think it makes all kinds of sense, as you mentioned, in, in the old city, wards one through eight. Uh, and, and obviously, you want to have some sort of system that, that's going to be uh, desirable. But you know as well as I do, the first thing about transit is it has to be affordable and convenient. And right now, it's neither in this city, which is one of the reasons, I'm sure, why those numbers are down, like you've just said. Well, I think it's affordable. We have one of the lowest transit rates in the province. And it's convenient if, depending on where you live. And if you live on, on uh, the Bay Line, it's a, it's a service every 10 minutes. I mean, that's an incredible service. But the problem, it's a chicken and egg thing. What comes first? 
and and I have expanded the transit system at Ancaster to offer evening, weekend, and full day service out to the Ancaster Industrial Park. I don't believe there's a person who lives in Ancaster who uses that, but it was the right thing to do for people who, because there's about four thousand or more than that jobs in the Ancaster Industrial Park, that and and a lot of those employees would come from the mountain and they can get on Route 44 and take us straight in there. But darn it, every time I and I drive by that entrance at least twice a day. Every time I, I purposely look over the buses, they're empty. And, and um, you know, maybe I'm driving by at the wrong time, but I'm going in at 8 in the morning, same as most other people would, and I'm coming home at 5, 30, 6 o'clock, same time other people are, are coming out. Why are these buses running empty? Until we get that answered, uh, I don't know why we continue with this 10-year strategy. And But I've been pounding that at the whole budget session. I finally got a resolution through council on uh, Thursday or through the budget meetings to ask staff to report back to us on um, what the enhancement we would need in 2019 if we went with actual numbers based on our, our current ridership rather than forecasted numbers that are four years old and wrong. And and so that information will be coming back to us. But back to area rating, this has been, you need to know it's been booted off for a year because it is a very contentious issue, and uh, I, not, I don't know where the end is for this. Well, let's let's get down to the dollars and cents of this. I mean, as you mentioned, there's a committee that's been struck right now, and I think it's got three, what, urban councillors and three rural councillors. Uh, I, I don't want to presuppose anything, Lloyd, but I can predict probably with some accuracy right now that you guys are going to go back and say the rural, they don't want the increase. They, they don't want to do this, and the people from wards one through eight are going to say, yeah, but we need to for the sake of quote-unquote equity. So we're, you, we're just going around in circles here, aren't we? Well, <laughs> there's other numbers you need to look at. Uh, there's 16 members of council, and there used to be um, uh, seven from the city and six from the suburban areas with the mayor. Uh, I got my numbers mixed up slightly. But with the, all the suburban councillors voting as a block and the mayor with them, they could tie a vote and cause it to fail because tie votes fail. Because of the shift in ward boundaries, where Ward 14 was wiped out and added to the mountain, we can't win this vote. And and that's the part that frightens me the most. The, the numbers are stacked against us. Uh, count the votes. And so it's going to be difficult to stop this train, um, but we'll do our, I'll do my absolute best I can, because I've asked to go on this committee to try to bring reason to it and make it fair, as Sam Rula said. All right, but with that in mind, I mean, I, I, is the stated goal of this committee here to try to find a way? I mean, is there an inevitability that this is going to be done and that they are going to eliminate area rating for transit? It's just a matter of how it's going to be done? Don't know. I, you know, I won't do it if it's going to give a, another 3.5% increase on Ancaster's taxes with no change in service, period. It's that simple. And until we find a solution to that, um, I, I, if we may come to a 3-3 vote at committee only to come on to council and get uh, get lost because of the shift in uh, ward boundaries. Well, you used a term uh, in your discussion with uh, some of your fellow councillors, Lloyd, that you said Ancaster was getting screwed. Now, you're speaking, obviously, for your residents. I've, I've heard similar uh, opinions from some of the councillors in, in, in the past, anyway, from places like Glenbrook and Binbrook and, and, and obviously out through Waterdown as well. Uh, is, is there a consensus in the rural areas right now that they don't want this and they, to maintain the status quo would might, or just might be the best solution? Well, that's certainly my sense around the council tables. But, you know, let me just talk about some other areas where Ancaster, and, you know, it's a tough word, screwed. But, you know, the high school is looking at selling off 14 acres of the high school property and at a fair at what's called a highest and best use, which is residential development, and they're saying the city well then you buy it, and yet we have a one point six billion dollar infrastructure deficit, so they're trying to download education costs onto the municipality. That goes to committee of adjustment on Thursday. That's, we just got an OMB decision a week ago Friday. We have a three floor height restriction in Castor because of limited infrastructure. We only have two lane roads, and secondly because it's part of our character. OMB just awarded a developer nine floors. What's that going to do to our community? You know, this whole cannabis growing, they're, they're, they're migrating out to rural areas to build these facilities on the argument that it's a crop, but in fact it's a, it's a uh, narcotic, and they're covering our rural areas with concrete, concrete and asphalt and glass to grow this stuff. And, and now this transit thing comes out. Of, there's, there, Ancaster is under siege, in my view, and I've got a lot of work to do to try to... Uh, keep its character, keep the costs reasonable, and properly represent my constituents.
Yeah, but you heard the feedback, and you've seen this on social media. I certainly have. As soon as a story like this surfaces, uh, you, you're going to get some people who have already commented to say, oh, come on, everybody in Ancaster is rich. They can afford this. Well, okay. <laughs> Listen. No comment? Uh, you're, well, I, well, I do. It's, bullshit. It's, it's, it's wrong. The, um, you know, the, your taxes are based on your assessed value. The assessed value, if you say that your taxes are going up $90 on the uh, price of an average assessed home in Hamilton, double that for Ancaster because the, the values of the homes are much higher. So don't try to suggest to me that we're not paying our way. Ward 12 now has the highest land mass of any other ward in the city. It has the highest population and has the most number of tax dollars going into city coffers. And so we're paying our share, and I don't want to hear any more of that nonsense. Well, and, and the numbers are, are the numbers. I mean, I understand that people are just going to take that, that rather tilted point of view. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that there's been some inequity here. And, and every time council has tried to do something about this, and you go back to your uh, the equalization payment, as they call it. I call it a slush fund that the, the wards one through aid get. Uh, I think it's totally unfair as well. And I, why would, are we not going to have a discussion about eliminating that? Well, once again, count the votes. Uh, of course we're going to have a discussion about it. But we've lost that balance because we lost Ward 14. So the old city Hamilton counters outnumber the suburban. But, but, but uh, please, uh, I, well, they'll do this, I guess, once they start having the debate at council, once you get some data about this. But explain to me how eliminating this and still maintaining that is quote-unquote fair. Well, yeah, it's not. It's not, and I raised this at council, and all I got were these funny-looking faces at me, and uh, and and so uh, that's just not on for from what I read. Now it's still early, early days, and I'm, I'll I'll listen to my council colleagues in wards one through eight, but there seemed to be no appetite to consider that. There are those that would uh, listen to your comments and, and obviously read the reporting on what they've seen over the last couple of days and say, "Well, that sounds to me like Councillor Ferguson is anti-transit." Are you? I was the only councillor outside where the train was going to run for LRT that come on side early for LRT. So don't tell me I'm anti-transit. And, and, and because I think I would reform the city, do an economic uplift, and does nothing for Ancaster. But it was the right thing to do. So that's my answer to that question, Bill. And, and I've, uh, I, I, I don't know where that can come from. Sure, you need transit in in larger in, in the downtown area. I understand that, and uh, but we don't need it in the, the same level of suburban, and we sure shouldn't be paying for it when we don't get the service. Well, it's uh, going to be a heated debate. You can count on that uh, once uh, everybody gets around the table and starts asking about this. And uh, I'm certain you are going to hear from your constituents, as they will in the other areas as well. And uh, we'll see. Oh, I'm hearing from them. I'm hearing. I from thought them. you might. I thought you might. Lloyd, we'll stay in touch on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate okay. it. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson, of course, the uh, counselor for uh, Ward 12 for Ancaster. Uh, your thoughts on this? I, whether you live in Ancaster or whether you live in Waterdown, whether you live in Stony Creek, in Glenbrook, uh, do you want to see this eliminated? Do you want to just say everybody pay one rate for transit, whether you get transit or not, or no matter what level of service you get? I'd be surprised. I'd be surprised if a majority of people in those outlying areas and those outlying wards would be okay with this. But talk to your counselor about it if you've got some concerns. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's an interesting twist. Uh, you may remember just after the uh, the Ford government was elected here in the province of Ontario, uh, it seems within hours, it was really a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, uh, one of the uh, first announcements they made was to cancel uh, the the guaranteed income program, the basic income program. Uh, and by the way, that was in spite of the fact that during the election campaign, a uh, candidate at that time, Doug Ford, said, no, no, he'd let it continue, and they'll gather the data and then make a determination as to whether or not they're going to continue with this. Well, they, he didn't do that. Uh, he just chopped the whole thing to pieces. And at the time, uh, Lisa McLeod, who's the minister in charge of that portfolio, said that, well, it wasn't working. There was no data to back up that claim, but that was their excuse, and that's moved forward. Well, there is some data now, as this program is drawing to a close. A report from the Basic Income Canada Network says that the lives of those participating in the Basic Income Project have actually improved. Uh, lots of positives about uh, what was actually going on here. Joining us to talk about this is Sheila Regeer, who is the chair of the Basic Income Canada Network. Uh, Sheila, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. Nice this, to talk to you. Well, it's a novel concept, actually, making a decision based on data. 
instead of just a political philosophy, I guess. So that's what you guys are doing. Well, it's certainly what we'd like to see more of. Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about this, and 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 we're doing this rather whimsically because I mean, this is the I guess the last month for the project, isn't it? This is this is the end of the runway for these people whose lives have been turned upside down. First in a positive way, and now you know the thought of going backwards is is really quite worrying. Now, this is an organization that may be new to an awful lot of people, the Basic Income Canada Network, Sheila. How did this come about? So we were actually formed a little over 10 years ago, um, but there's been a basic income movement that's been sustained over a long time internationally. And so there actually is a lot of research um, that has gone into this worldwide. We have evidence from pilots that were run in the 1970s in Canada so we just knew that this was the time for this to really come back to the forefront. Um, that's backed up by, you know, the, the high-tech guys, um, a lot of people who are concerned about income security in this precarious world of work. Um, a lot of issues are, are driving this. What I found most interesting at the time when we started talking to our international colleagues was that Canada's already halfway to a basic income. We provide it to seniors and children, and it works. We just have gaps. Well, that's one of the things I found rather incongruous about the debate about this, to suggest, well, we can't afford to do this. And, and you're already right. I mean, yeah, that, that horse is already out of the barn. We do this. And, and I know there's a debate going on in the States right now. Donald Trump doesn't want the United States to become a socialist country. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, they, they have the same sort of thing. They have Social Security. They have old-age pensions. I mean, and, uh, and, and there's help here for, for those that are in need. I mean, we're already doing this. It's just a matter of how far can we extend it or should we extend it. And how we can do things more effectively. I mean, the money we're throwing into a lot of programs is not getting the results we need. And so if we're talking about affordability, I mean, that's one of the key things that anybody looks at in a budget. Are you getting value for your money? Yeah. Well, bang for your buck. Well, let's mm-hmm. t- let's talk a little bit about this now. You, you referenced the, the the study that was done in Dauphin, Manitoba, some years ago. Uh, that uh, that's well, uh, at least kicked off the discussion and the debate about this. And it, it mixed. It met at that time, if I recall, Sheila, with mixed reviews. Some people saying, "Well, yeah, maybe it's going to work," but we're not so sure. And and it really just seemed to sit in somebody's desk drawer for the longest time before anybody actually started to to say, "Look, it maybe we need to revive this idea and do some research on this." Yeah, you're right. Um, basically, political circumstances changed, and similar to, unfortunately, what happened in Ontario this time around as well, um, a lot of the information got shelved. And we just didn't really know very much about it until Dr. Evelyn Forget unearthed this fairly recently. One of the fascinating things about her work, though, is that in the 1970s, both in Canada and the United States, Everybody was concerned primarily about work disincentives, and were there any. So not only did Evelyn find that this is a red herring, and we really don't have anything to be concerned about on that front, because she was able to use health records and other information in Manitoba in her study, one of the amazing things she found was all of these other benefits. So it enables kids to stay in school longer, it enables new mums to stay home with babies longer, it enables physical and mental health to improve so that you have savings in hospitals and, and medical care. Okay, but when I hear for the the, the detractors, and, and you know there are they're out there, they're they're the ones that are simply saying, "Look, we can't afford to do this. We don't see any net benefit to this whole thing." Is is part of the problem here, Sheila, that there's there's a lack of understanding about what this program really is? Because you've heard, I'm sure, the characterization in some circles that say, "Look, this is just paying people to sit around and do nothing." Uh, you know, and that's that's not fair. That's not what we should be doing. Yeah, and there really is no evidence. There isn't. There is no evidence to back that up. But you have to understand the situations that people are living in. And one of the values of our report in all of the commentary that we see, that we receive from people that helps explain, you know, their circumstances and what happened. So just as an example, we know from the baseline survey that the government conducted 
that the vast majority of these people entering the program, all of the participants, the, the recipients and the, the control group, there was a very high degree of psychological distress exhibited by people. So you don't go from, you know, living a life that has caused you this kind of distress and ill health, you don't turn that around overnight into the kind of employment results that the people are, are looking for quickly, perhaps. But we have examples in our survey of people who were able to take a little bit of time with the basic income, get their anxiety under control, eat better, get their health improved, and then they can start looking for a job. And then they can try out a few things to find out what really works for them that's going to give them a more sustainable economic future. Well, and and we're excluding, and we and doing this at our own peril, I guess, in the sake of for the sake of this discussion, uh, the number of people that were in this program that actually did work uh, and were working at the time, and some of them one or two jobs, but not enough to make ends meet. Oh yeah, lots of people are working more than one job. They're working intermittent jobs. Um, they're working so hard and really not having much of a life until the basic income came along, and that made all the difference. And one of the other misconceptions, I think, when people read about this is that they think everybody is getting the $17,000 a year or whatever. That's not the case. If you're working and you're making income, you're going to get a smaller amount. And we found from our recipients that even the small amounts made a huge difference to the security in their lives. And makes them, those that were not uh, at that time employed, it makes them more employable, obviously. I mean, if you're healthier and able to go to work, if you're able to afford transit uh, and, and to get from point A to point B, uh, it makes you a much more eligible candidate for a job, doesn't it? It certainly does. And the rate of people who were able to start or expand a business, I think, was another really important finding. It's, it's significant. And, you know, it's a matter of people, in one case, being able to buy a set of paintbrushes and rollers and equipment to be able to become self-employed and earn some of, some of his own income. This, again, falls into all the stereotypes that, that we've heard over the years. And, and, you know, this started a long, long time ago. And you've heard some of the derogatory terms, welfare bums, uh, you know. Uh, it, and, and they class everybody in, in, into one big basket here and simply say, well, whether you're on ODSP or something else, you're, just, you're on welfare. And there's, there are different classifications, obviously, because of different circumstances that people are, are living with right now. And, and I, I think it's unfair to actually throw everybody into, into one category and say, well, that's, those are the people that are a drag on society. Those are people that are uh, oftentimes, and you've, I've seen some of the stories that you've talked about here, Sheila, uh, that it just, you know, life sometimes gives you a whack in the face. I mean, you know, I know there was one lady that, that was in the program uh, who was employed and, and doing relatively well, but, you know, the business went bankrupt, and, and she's all of a sudden out of a job. Uh, you got a mortgage to pay. You've got bills to pay. All of a sudden, they can't go back to school and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase my, my talent level so I can get a different job. Uh, sometimes you're kind of between a rock and a hard place, and, and that's, I think, one of the, the purposes of a program like this, is it not? It absolutely is. It's, we want to be able to help people withstand all of those ups and downs that everybody faces. I mean, in some cases, we are all in the same boat. It's just if you have more resources, you can weather those ups and downs and those hardships. So what we want to do is prevent anybody from really having to sink so low and to hit rock bottom so that it becomes so difficult to get out. And, you know, that's one of the key findings of the report is that when people have this kind of stability, security, and agency, autonomy, that's the other critical part. It's not some bureaucrat telling you what they think is a good idea for spending your money. People need to be able to control their own lives and how they spend their time and money in ways that work best for them. And it might be different this week than it is next week or next month. And the, our survey shows that people were able to plan for the future, to develop, you know, different ways of meeting their needs. It's just quite incredible what people will do if given half a chance. All right, let's let's talk about going forward here. As we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Sheila, this is the last month for the program. The, the people that were involved in this uh, are 
essentially going to be left high and dry at the end of this month. Uh, who's going to pick up the ball here? Clearly, the Ontario government doesn't seem to have any inclination towards doing this. There was some talk about a federal program. Um, what have you heard? So I, I don't know what's floating out there in, in two terms of rumors. I, I know for a while there was a hope that the federal government would pick up the pilot um, or at least get involved somehow in the research aspect of this, and I'm not sure who has what data at what level. But all along, the Basic Income Canada Network has advocated for a national policy. I mean, when you think about Canada overall, this was a very bold move for Ontario. But Ontario is probably the only jurisdiction that could ever have thought about going this alone. For all of these other things, major policies like our seniors and children's benefits, it takes national cooperation. It takes federal, provincial, territorial, and even municipal governments to cooperate to roll this kind of thing out. So our focus is national. It's on the federal election for 2019. Um, we need to make this a national issue. I mean, the, the people in this pilot are not just Ontarians. They're like other people in Canada who are struggling. Well, and when we start talking about what might happen going forward here, I mean, I have heard those rumors. I mean, the federal budget's coming down in just a couple of weeks, and there is an election coming up, as we know, this October, and there's some discussion that maybe they might throw this out as in, in the way of their own pilot project. Now, I don't even know what kind of shape that's going to take, but uh, that, that discussion is out there. But are you surprised with the information that we have here in the province, uh, and, and this, certainly the data that you've gathered here, uh, that, that more people aren't uh, trying to form some kind of a project similar to this? I mean, it just seems as if everybody seems to think, not everybody, but I guess an awful lot of jurisdictions seem to think this is a really good idea. Uh, they were watching to see what was going to happen here in Ontario, and I guess we're waiting to see who else is going to pick up the ball and try to do it within their own jurisdiction. Yeah, I agree. I mean, everybody has a part to play in this. Um, one of the things we discovered in some other work that we're doing that's going to be released later is that um, over the past year or so, there are a number of jurisdictions who actually have increased slightly um, some of the ways in which they provide direct cash transfers to people. So this is the way of the future. I think more and more people are coming to, to learn that. So, you know, that province could build on it partially. The federal government taking leadership would be enormously important. But it certainly is doable. And we think we should really just... I mean, we have to get on with this. It, it just makes so much sense. Well, I suggest people uh, get some information about this, and you've got some of that data. Is there a, a website they can go to to get some of the information that you've been talking about here? Yep, basicincomecanada.org. There's a wealth of resources up there. One of the first places we suggest people start is with our primer series. It's, you know, these really uh, short, pithy documents that help you understand what basic income is all about, some of the history, and how it might affect you. Well, and that might be a good spot as any, because I think there's so much misrepresentation of what this program is all about, and mischaracterization of it, which I think put an awful lot of people on the wrong side of this issue, simply because they didn't have a, a full understanding as to what they were actually doing. Yep. We hope so. Well, Sheila, good luck with this. Building understanding is important. Well, good luck with this. Uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll get some good news in this federal budget in a couple of weeks. Uh, uh, but we certainly want to stay in touch with you and uh, as, as we go forward here and just see exactly uh, what's going to happen here. And uh, hopefully there'll be some hope for these people that have been on the program and seen the positive benefit. Thank you so much for this today. Thank you so much. Sheila Regeer, of course, the chair of the Basic Income Canada Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mexico is saying that it is not going to ratify the new NAFTA deal uh, if the United States does not remove tariffs on steel and aluminum. Now, stop me if you've heard this before. Oh, that's right. It was a week ago when uh, Mark Garneau, of course, the Canadian minister, uh, said the exact same thing. Marvin Ryder joins us to talk about this, business professor at the uh, DeGroote School of Business, of course, at McMaster University. Hey, Marvin, how are you doing this morning? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. This is uh, the trade deal, the Rodney Dangerfield, I guess, of trade deals. Nobody <laughs> seems to have any respect for it. Yes, in a way. So I don't mean to sound like I'm going to correct you, but I am just going to change one thing. Mark Garneau said not that it would be impossible to pass, but that it would just be difficult to pass. Mexico's actually up the ante and saying if you don't remove the tariffs, we're not going to pass it, full stop. I think the liberals feel 
A, they work too hard to put it that way, and B, um, they're going to be facing an election in the fall. I think they want to ratify it beforehand, so they're trying to slow the process, but I don't think they want to get rid of it altogether. All right, but with that in mind, let, let's assume that they do that. Uh, but if the U.S. hasn't signed on and Mexico hasn't signed in, what good is it? Yes. Well, you raise a good question. I suppose it's the old story that somebody has to go first. Someone has to say, it's not a perfect deal, but we, we think it's good enough for the time being. And I think both countries, Canada and Mexico, are trying to put pressure on Mr. Trump and all of his associated uh, uh, cabinet ministers to get those tariffs off. Uh, and certainly, by the way, as we talked about last week, Bill, and make sure there are no new tariffs going on, in particular around the automobile sector, which is another little card that Mr. Trump has up his sleeve. Uh, and so I think if they can get that pressure, I, I don't think there's a big danger to us approving it, but I would really love to see those tariffs go away. Well, uh, well let's talk about the Mexican situation, then we can get uh, to this side of the border and find right. out what's going on. One of the things that I think surprised a lot of us as we had these discussions about the negotiations uh, was this labor reform that Mexico uh, is is about to introduce, uh, pending, I guess, what happens with the states. Uh, but the, the newly signed on president there says this is really no big deal. We were going to do this anyway. So I guess I guess we both got caught a little bit off guard by that. <laughs> well, right, Bill. So let me just take you back to last year's negotiating. Uh, Canada and Mexico seem to be quite unified in their concerns about uh, NAFTA, NAFTA 2.0. Uh, and one seemed to be supporting the other. And then all of a sudden, in August of last year, after the Mexican presidential elections, before Mr. Obrador comes in, but after he's elected, so his team starts to uh, show up on the negotiating team, you might remember that the U.S. and Mexico went off on their own, and they left Canada on the sidelines. And we weren't worried about that because, look, Mexico and Canada, we're good allies. One's not going to undermine the other. And lo and behold, Labor Day of 2018, uh, Mexico and the U.S. said, we've, we've signed off on a deal. And we went, oh, my gosh, that seems so surprising because, Mexico, you were the ones more than anybody else complaining about some of these labor provisions, uh, making sure that workers get paid decent wages and so on and so forth. What, what's happened and what we've discovered is that there was a change in the negotiation team that uh, Mr. Uh, 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 Obrador, Lopez Obrador, got his people involved, and he has said that he uh, wants to use this USMCA, or whatever words you want to use it, the new NAFTA 2.0, as a way to improve the working lot of Mexican citizens. Now, it's worth remembering that uh, Mr. Lopez Obrador was elected from a left-leaning party, I mean, a socialist kind of party. That's the kind of rhetoric that many people in Mexico wanted to hear, that those big companies, they're not just going to run roughshod and pay you uh, skin, skinny wages. They're, instead, they're going to give you decent wages for the work you did. So I, I, I can't say I dislike any of that. I think, in fact, many people in the United States are going to be thrilled hearing that because that's always been the concern, cheap Mexican labor taking jobs away from Canada and the United States. The fact that they want to improve it is better. But as always, Bill, you know, talk is cheap. I love to see the details in those bills, um, and I'd like to see them actually get those things passed. But if they're all true, and I have no reason to doubt Mr. Lopez Obrador, then bravo, bravo to him. All right, and, and where does that leave the rest of the, the, this deal then? Because, I mean, obviously the concern here, as you say, with an election pending, and, and a U.S. election not too far away either, uh, you'd like to get th th this thing settled. Uh, I mean, there was a, such a big to-do about this when all three of them signed on to this thing uh, back in the summertime. Uh, I, I kind of get the sense that Donald Trump's moved on from this right now. That was his little project at one point, and he doesn't seem to pay much attention to it anymore. Well, in a way, so uh, they had that little meeting of the three amigos. I think it was actually in Rio or someplace down in South America. So they had a big signing ceremony, and you get Trump's signature on a document. But, of course, the signing ceremony only meant that the three parties had agreed that this was the text. The next step was to get the governments to approve it. Uh, different processes in each of the three countries. So Mexico uh, is going to do this through their own Senate. Uh, as I say, they, they seem to be liking it, with the exception of the steel provisions, which are, of course, outside of USMCA. The liberals could also do it here. They have a majority. They could easily get it through the House of Commons if they wish. In the United States, the first step is to be hearings in the House. 
And you might know that the House is now controlled by the Democrats. And at the moment, the Democrats seem to be a little more interested in talking to Mr. Cohen and, and the Mueller investigation and chasing down Russian collusion. And I'm not saying that's not important, but at this moment, no hearings on this new USMCA have been scheduled. That means likely we won't see hearings on this free trade deal in the House maybe until the early summer, maybe even into the late summer. So this could well be an agreement that Canada and Mexico approve by Labor Day with the United States waiting until the fall. Now, what's Mr. Trump have to say? Well, he's fighting the Democrats on so many fronts. You're right. He hasn't talked about this one specifically, but he just, he's battling them every way, uh, tooth and nail. Um, and I think they're going to get around to it. They remember, again, that there is a, pre- a presidential election coming up in uh, 2020, and uh, this kind of stuff, free trade, does play to those um, base states, the Rust Belt states, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, what have you. So they've got to find the right way. I'm guessing, to be candid, the Democrats don't quite know which way to go on this. The Democrats have said that they don't like USMCA, but because it didn't go far enough, meaning they didn't think there were enough protections for workers, that there were enough protections for the environment, now that Mexico seems to be embracing it, they may have to change their tune. All right, but with that in mind, uh, I, I'm getting the sense from some of the folks I've heard down in the states too, and you're right, I, the, most of them that I've heard anywhere, Democrats now, since they control the, the House of Representatives down there, uh, and, and similar to what you've just said, they don't think it's gone far enough. Is is there a mood starting to develop down there to actually renegotiate parts of this deal? Well, yeah, that's again is that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. I, I think the Democrats understand that if you if you say, well, let's let's reopen talks. There are things that Canada doesn't completely love in the deal. There are things that Mexico doesn't completely love in the deal. So if you were to reopen it, in other words, rescind that three-party signature and say, that isn't the final text, that was just one more version, let's go back one more time, we're going to do it with great reluctance. And also let's remember that Mr. Lighthizer, who negotiated on behalf of the United States, he doesn't necessarily embrace what the Democrats want to add. So who would actually lead the negotiation? If it's someone who doesn't believe in what the Democrats want to add, then how is he going to get something meaningful? So I I think instead what we may see is a head of steam developing around, let's sign this as the basic deal, but let's negotiate some kind of a side deal, or you might say if this was a will, a codicil, an add-on agreement, yes, we'll approve plan A, but there's got to be a B part to insert in here. That might be the better way to go. But the Democrats haven't actually thought through their strategy on this, other than, generally speaking, to oppose everything that Donald Trump believes in. Is, I, I guess what we have to ask ourselves here, is there a sense of urgency to get this thing done? I mean, I, I know that if, if you want to go back here to a couple of years ago, I mean, this was really uh, done because Donald Trump said he wanted to, well, I think the word he used was tweak the deal. He's done a little more than tweak it, I guess, if he gets uh, some of the nuts and bolts into this thing right now. But uh, but it, is, are, is the sand running out of the hourglass here? Are we having to get this thing done by a certain date? Because I'm kind of getting the sense that even Mexico, with some of the comments they've made over the past weekend or so, are saying, look, at, you know, no big deal. We'll just keep the, uh, the existing deal. We're, we're fine with that, too, which I don't think the United States would be. No. So uh, let's, let's just go back through this for half a second. So the, the first concern was the Mexican presidential election last year. Peña Nieto, who was the president, a bit more right-leaning, a bit more pro-business, uh, lost or his party lost to this left-leaning party. So there was a great concern. Look, we got to get this negotiated before that guy gets in because he's going to want to rip it all up. And to our amazement, the handoff between the one Mexican president and the other has been actually very smooth with the new president, the socialist president, saying, no, I, I don't have any problems with NAFTA at all. Even those provisions around workers, that I, I embrace those. So we've done now, in Canada, I, I think, uh, I, I'd hate to quote Mr. Scheer because he, he isn't always that clear where he stands, but I think he's also in favor of this. So whether Justin gets reelected in the fall or Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives take over, uh, I don't think there'd be any question that the USMCA could still get approval in Canada. Jagmeet Singh, he has been a little more... Um, uh, uncomplimentary about the deal, in particular, again, around labor clauses and environmental protections. I think he'd like those beefed up. 
Uh, and I hate to say this out loud, I'm going to make people mad, but I, I, just, I just don't see it in the cards for him to form even a minority government that I think the best he could hope for would be to be the linchpin in either a liberal or a conservative minority. Whether he'd be able to use that to reopen USMCA, I don't know. So the real question mark in all this is the United States. We have a deal that Trump likes. If Trump likes it, that means the Senate likes it. It's the House that doesn't seem to necessarily like it. But look, if they can make... Um, headway on some of these other aspects and if canada and mexico were to go to them directly and say look we really need you to back off on this and approve this and this is kind of what mark garno was doing uh, last weekend not the past weekend but the weekend before when he was visiting the the american governors convention to say please lobby the senators please lobby your representative saying this we think this is the best deal we can get at the time being let's get behind this we can always amend it down the road so i just it's really the house and the democrats they've not come out with overly strong statements i just don't know where they're going is time running out no uh, in fact it, i think the way this thing was signed you have until 2020 to ratify it so we've got lots of time but i think there is a bit of question around the american forces can we get them lined up in some way i would really hate to go back to the bargaining table after that intensive eight months that we had. But if we work on the premise, as we've, I think, learned from a number of people that worked inside the White House and are no longer there, uh, Trump oftentimes decides on policy based on the last person he talked to. Uh, and he, he has surrounded himself with people that like tariffs, Lighthizer being one of them, Wilbur Ross, the, the Commerce Secretary, being another. Uh, is there much of a chance of this even happening? Of saying, okay, fine, we'll just. We'll, I know Larry Kudlow was in uh, on uh, going public statements about this just the other day and said, oh yeah, maybe we can do this. But he's not ultimately going to make the decision. It's going to be Donald Trump, and Donald Trump seems to like the idea of tariffs because that that's power to him. Right. Uh, so, but let's remember how Donald Trump is applying these tariffs. He's using something called Provision Two Thirty Two, which allows the President of the United States, not just Donald Trump, any President of the United States to apply tariffs in the case of a national emergency. Canada's argument, Mexico's argument, many other people in the United States is there is no national emergency. The whole provision was there basically for a time of war or potential war, where the last thing you want is your allies benefiting from their products entering your com country. You'd want to put tariffs on. He has claimed, and, he, and of course the Department of Commerce has given him documents to suggest that, oh yes, yes, the, the steel industry is under attack. The aluminum industry is under attack. The auto industry is under attack. The dairy industry is under attack. And therefore, Mr. Trump, you are fully justified. The Republicans who had controlled the House and the Republicans who controlled the Senate had never wanted to challenge him. And I, I just think this is amazing because if uh, Barack Obama had tried using this clause, they would have said, where's your proof there's a national emergency? There's no national emergency. And they would have voted to overturn the tariffs. This is really the key question, I think, with the, with the Democrats now in the House, uh, although they are busy again with the Russian investigation and collusion and Cohen and all those sorts of things. I have actually been expecting them as part of their hearings to say to the president, what's your proof that there's a national emergency? What's your proof that these tariffs are justified? And the reason is simple. It's actually the House and the Senate who have the ability to apply tariffs. The president, under all normal circumstances, do not. Trump has found this little loophole, whether he's going to get away with this loophole for much longer. So again, if I was Trump and it looked like the forces were circling to close that loophole, then I've got nothing to lose by doing it on my own, getting ahead of the story. For the moment, as they let him keep doing this, I wouldn't be surprised if he put some tariffs, say, on European cars or Korean cars, just again to thumb his nose at them. Whether he could keep getting away with that, I don't know. Is he more preoccupied with China now than he is with this North American deal? Well, he's preoccupied on a couple of fronts. First, he, last week, of course, he was preoccupied with North Korea. I think uh, he really, really, really wants a Nobel Prize. Why? Because Barack Obama had a Nobel Peace Prize, so Trump feels he should have one, too. He sees North Korea as his ticket to that, and I think he's quite disappointed in the way those go, uh, the way those negotiations went last week. In fact, he, he claimed in Vietnam that they actually had an agreement all worked out, and then at the last minute, uh, Kim Jong-un uh, withdrew and wouldn't sign it, and I think that disappointed him a lot. With China, we are facing a deadline. It's this Friday. 
there was a ceasefire, if you will, in the tariff battle between those nations. No new tariffs, existing tariffs, but no new tariffs. But if there wasn't something by this Friday, there would be new fire, uh, new arms being fired, new tariffs being put on things. Um, and, and I think he would like to avoid that. I think he is now of the opinion that maybe he can get a better negotiated deal. Just what that's going to be, though, we've got basically 96 hours for that to debut. That could be the big business story of the week. But I just, again, haven't seen enough smoke to think that there's a fire behind that. But, yeah, I would say at this moment, this week, he's much more focused on China. But he'll get back to this because, remember, there is a presidential election. This man wants to be reelected. The Democratic uh, challenge are starting to marshal, and he needs to get his uh, story straight and take it out to the people. So I, I suspect we're not done with this by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it looks as uh, from what we've heard over the weekend here that he's going to lose his uh, national emergency designation on the border wall situation. Apparently, it's going to get defeated in the Senate from what we're hearing now. Does he pull this one out of the bottom drawer then, this this, this NAFTA 2, and say, okay, at least I got this, Let's get, let me get something? He needs a win. He needs a win. Well, he's had a couple of wins. Remember, he's put two people on the Supreme Court, and he has passed tax reform, even though it's cost the American public a trillion dollars in debt in its first year of implementation. Uh, wealthy people say, thank you very much, Mr. Trump. We really appreciate that. Companies say, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. So he's got a couple of victories. I, I, you know, he's, he's keen on calling it USMCA because he doesn't like NAFTA. Any victory of an approval that got rid of NAFTA would be good for him. I think he will default back to this if he can't get a victory anywhere else. But again, keep in mind, the Democrats, what is their strategy on here? They're going to want to seem to have a victory. So it may be NAFTA 2.0, but with a couple of little amendments. You know, we'll see what kind of a dealmaker Trump really is. Well, one of the sub-stories here is the effect and the impact these tariffs themselves are having. And I know it was a wonderful story last week when we see that the new Stelco actually had a great quarter and they're making money. But that's not going to last long if these tariffs stay in place. Well, for a couple of reasons. So, uh, yes, over the last year, the tariffs actually helped drive the price of steel up to almost record levels. Uh, Selco bouncing back after bankruptcy protection was able to cash in and have some wonderful quarters. The problem is that they had signed long-term supply contracts, and really those people who were buying Stelco steel didn't have any choice but to pay the tariffs. The question is, are they going to renew those tariffs? And the longer those tariffs exist, the more likely someone is to say, you know, until they're gone, I'm going to find a source of supply from someplace else. That didn't happen in 2018, and it hasn't happened so far early in 2019, but it has the potential to affect later 2019 and 2020. So those tariffs can be damaging in the longer term. That's why we'd like to get them removed sooner rather than later. Uh, but also in the United States, it's causing problems. I think it's the Ford Motor Company, if I'm wrong, it's General Motors, who said so far these tariffs have cost them billions of dollars uh, in, in extra costs and therefore it'll reduce profits because of it. And they want them gone as well. So how long will Trump keep imposing this that is hurting American business as much as it's challenging Canadian and Mexican business? I don't know. And he claims to listen. He claims to be a business person. You just can't think he could keep this going for very much longer. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroot School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.